Bibles now, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 1. Last week, we began our study in this first book of Matthew, or first book of the New Testament, that many Bible scholars and commentators believe to be one of the most, or if not the most important book that's in the Bible. And certainly, three of the most significant events in all the world are recorded right here in the book of Matthew, and that would be the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, and also his resurrection. Really, everything that you need to know is summed up right in those things because that's what this entire world is about. This is why the world was created to glorify God and God sent his son into the world and anyone who believes in him can be saved. Now, we're only 11 days away from Christmas at this time and this morning I want to consider the greatest miracle that has ever happened in all the history of the world And that is when God became man, when Jesus came into this world. My Christmas messages throughout the month of uh, December may be a little bit different than things that I've preached before in some ways. And that is, we're, we're doing a straight exposition of the book of Matthew. And so we're taking this just as it comes to us. And so we're going to look at the story of the birth of Christ all throughout this month. And I time things this way that we would be able to be in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew during the month of December. But Jesus had to come to this earth in a very special way. He had to have a birth that was like any other birth that was before it. And he was truly the virgin-born Son of God. And that's the subject of the message today. Now, in the message last week, we talked about the human genealogy of Christ. And that's what we find in the first 17 verses of this book. Uh, Jesus came to this earth as a man. He had a right, right to the throne of David. And Matthew was concerned with showing his readers that Jesus has the ancestry that proves that he can be the Messiah, that he is a, an heir to the throne of David. And he has a right to that throne. Now, it's interesting that throughout Jesus' ministry, he was challenged on many different issues, but he was never challenged about his ancestry. And so Matthew goes about to establish, first of all, Christ's humanity, and then he comes to the subject of his deity. And so in the first 17 verses that we talked about last week, there was the genealogy of Christ, the human genealogy, and it's Matthew's purpose to show that Jesus is a legal heir, has the legal right to the throne of David. But now Matthew has another task to complete. And that is to also show us that Jesus was divine. Just being a man and just being a legal heir to the throne of David could not make him the Messiah. He has to be more than just an earthly king because he also has to be someone who can forgive us and take care of our sins. And the only one who can ever deliver us from our sins is God. Now, later in the message, I'll explain a little bit more why the Messiah must also be God But now Matthew moves on from the human genealogy and he talks about the divine genealogy. And in that, we don't find a list of names. There aren't 42 generations or 42 names in in 14 generations as spoken of in those first 17 verses. But when we come to the divine genealogy of Christ, there's actually only one name, and that is the name of God, and that he was born of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary, and so the God-man, Jesus Christ, was born into the world. Now let's stand, please, as we read our text today. 
This is about the birth of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse number 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now I want you to notice there as we're reading that that human genealogy stopped at verse number 17. The Bible does not say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. In verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost." And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, And took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, uh, we are just so thankful to read once again this Christmas story. Every year we come down to these scriptures, the several that we read throughout the Gospels, and we're just ever grateful that Jesus came into the world to save us from our sins. We thank you for that, and I pray, Lord... If there's anyone here today who doesn't recognize who Jesus is, that he is truly God and that he gave his life for us, would you open their eyes to the gospel of Christ today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Matthew starts this section of chapter 1 with the birth of Jesus. And he says, it was on this wise. And that's really just another way of saying that this is the way it happened. Jesus' mother, who was Mary, was engaged to a man by the name of Joseph. And the scripture is very clear about this next point there as we read it. It says, before they came together. And that means before Mary and Joseph had intimate relationship, Mary was found to be pregnant. Well, Joseph could only make one assumption about that. When he found out about this, he knew that he was not the father of the child. And so the obvious conclusion must be that Mary had been unfaithful, that she wasn't true to the promise of marriage that she had given. She had no respect for the marriage vow, but rather now she is pregnant with another man's child. Now, Joseph was engaged to her, but he didn't think it was right that he would continue with that engagement and then enter into the marriage. Now, let's take just a moment in the beginning of the message today, to try to understand just a little bit better about this dilemma that Joseph faced. So first of all today, we want to look at the commitment for the companions, the commitment for these two people that decided they were going to get married. Now today, this would have been a very simple decision for anyone here probably. If you found out this kind of information that, and you were faced with this kind of a problem, you would just simply say, well, the marriage is over. Let, let's pull the plug on that. There won't be a marriage and that's the end of it. But Mary and Joseph 
didn't have as, uh, such a simple thing to do. I mean, this wasn't simple at all for them. A pregnancy before a marriage in those days prevented a very significant problem, and they were pro- there were profound repercussions for this. And that's because an engagement in those days was not like the engagements that we have today, but rather this was more of a promise to marry that was actually a contract that two people entered into. So first we see that it was a contract for future marriage. These are arranged marriages that we're talking about. The parents of the bride and the groom arranged the marriage, and this was done for Mary and Joseph. And often these marriages, you didn't consult the people that were getting married. The parents just chose the two who were going to be married. And so they established a contract between them by exchanging a sum of money that was paid as a dowry to the family of the bride. And there are two great things that I like about that kind of marriage. The first one is that the bride's family gets to choose their son-in-law, and then the second is that they get paid for doing it. Now, I, I, I have two daughters that, that got married, and I didn't get any choice at all in the son-in-laws, and I certainly didn't get paid for it either. But these are... Uh, I, you know, I'm happy that, that my daughters made excellent choices. I'm thankful for that. They did. And uh, it would have been much better if I had the good choices and had the money too, but I didn't get that. But the reason here then that the dowry was paid to the bride's family was because there were certain expenses that would be incurred for the wedding that the bride's family had to pay for. And so the dowry is an insurance program, you might say, that the, the, the groom won't skip out on the marriage. Now, the, the parents of the bride are not going to give their daughter and pay for all of these expenses if they don't have that money up front. And so they receive this money as payment for the wedding expenses, and then the the brides, or rather the groom's family, knew that when they paid this money that they were also going to get the bride. So there is a contract that's been established between these two families, and the parties that are going to get married really don't have very much to say about it. Well, when you have an unwanted pregnancy that's thrown into this mix, and you have a bride that seems to be unfaithful, there's really a whole set, new set of dynamics that are introduced. The contract has already been set. The money has been paid. The marriage ceremony is to go through. But it's not yet been performed. And even though not having been performed, that contract is still there, which says that these two people are legally bound to one another. So there's only one way that you could break this contract, and that was it could only be done by divorce. Now, that seems strange to us, uh, to have a divorce before the marriage is actually consummated, but that's exactly what this was. It was a contract that had been made. They're supposed to go through with this. So the ceremony has not yet been performed. The, The marriage has not yet been consummated, but the custom for the bride and the groom is to be considered now legally married. And so the only way that you could break that was through the formality of a divorce. So you have a big problem here. I mean, notwithstanding the fact of the, or supposed facts of the infidelity of Mary, breaking the marriage at this point was a very traumatic event. A divorce has to take place. The contract has to be broken. And the onus is on Joseph, the one who is the husband, to break that contract, to stop the marriage, and not to go through with it. Now, I want to point out something, though, before we we move on from this point. 
In verse number 18, it says that Mary was found with child. What exactly does that mean, that she was found with child? Well, of course, it means that Joseph found out about the pregnancy, but he didn't discover this in the way that we might imagine. Now, you see that Mary was really not trying to hide this from him. Uh, She wasn't doing that. But this is a period when Joseph and Mary are engaged, and they're waiting for the ceremony, but they really don't have hardly any contact with one another. There's no dating period like we have today. There's no poignant moment when the boy gets down on one knee and asks the bride for her hand in marriage. None of that took place. This is already set up. And so they didn't spend time together. They didn't date before the marriage. And so Joseph would not have seen Mary. When that baby began to grow in Mary's womb, she would begin to show. I mean, just like pregnancies today. So Joseph really wasn't there to see this happening before his eyes. And Mary didn't send word to him and say, well, guess what? Here's news for you. No, the way that Joseph would have found out about this is that others who did have contact with Mary, they would see that there's something amiss here. There is a baby here. And so they would have been the ones who went and told Joseph what was happening. And that, of course, would have been very shocking and disturbing news to him. I mean, there's no explanation for it. It's just sort of laid out there. This woman that you're going to marry is pregnant. And so Joseph has to internalize that, and he has to deal with that. And at that point, of course, Joseph did not know the whole story of what had taken place. But I do like what one commentator said about this. He said, there's a good lesson in this for all of us. Mary was found out, but she didn't commit any sin. There was no sin here. She was found out, and she did begin to show. She didn't commit any sin, but she did begin to show. And the commentator said this, which I thought was so good, that when the Holy Spirit is in you, it will show. And I thought that was a statement that was worth putting on your listening sheet today. When Jesus is in you, when he comes and the Holy Spirit claims your body as his temple, it will begin to show. And if it doesn't show, then there's proof that Jesus is not really in you. So here you have Joseph, he has a dilemma. Mary has an espoused husband who has no idea what truthfully happened. And so that brings us then to Matthew's commentary uh, about what happened as he goes further and he talks about the character of the couple. He has something here to say about these two people that are getting married. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make a public example was minded to put her away privately. So what do we know about this couple? Well, let's take Joseph first. Now, Joseph, of course, is the groom. Joseph didn't have contact with Mary. He didn't know all the things that she knew. This girl that he thought was pure and clean was now, in his mind, just really defiled and common. Joseph expected that he would marry a virgin. Now, today, there's not much of a price that's put on virginity. But in God's eyes then, as well as in God's eyes now, sexual purity is highly valued. So what did Joseph face? Well, number one, he was devastated with the facts. His distress and his disappointment was really, though, a a character or a, a product of his godly character. This was something that mattered to him. Pregnancy was a sign of disloyalty. It was betrayal. 
And whenever you put your trust in someone and they betray that trust that you've given, it is a very devastating affair. And so God's Word also puts high value on honesty and integrity. Sex outside of marriage is not honest, and neither does it show character. Well, I don't think that Joseph was a selfish man in any sense of the word, and we're going to see that in just a moment. But Joseph knew that this pregnancy would be a blight on his character. He was a, a godly man. He wanted no taint of impropriety in his life. He had a reputation to uphold, and he wanted to keep that reputation. And the conclusion that other people might come to is when they saw that Mary was pregnant, they would think that what Joseph did, well, he did sneak around, that he and Mary did get together, and so now she is pregnant before they've actually gone through with the ceremony. But Joseph didn't know the whole story. And, and there must have been a thousand things that were going on to his mind as he contemplated this. But there is a reason why God chose this particular man. He's the right man to do this. Here's the right person to raise this child. He did have the right kind of character. Because next we see that he deliberated with forgiveness. He thought about this and he had forgiveness on his mind. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. And then next it says, while he thought on these things. So he deliberated about what to do. He didn't act rashly and not harshly. He was trying to figure the thing out. What am I supposed to do? There's no indication he's vindictive. There's no anger that we find in the text. Joseph did not retaliate. He loved this woman. And despite what he thought that she had done, he had her welfare at his heart. And so what he thought about was, how can I make this easier on her? How can I keep her from being, being hurt in this affair and make things less painful for her? So being a just man, as the Word of God says, he knew what he had to do. Now, he must divorce her because that was a just action according to the law. And further, the law said that he had the right to do this, and not only the right, but also the right to expose her for what she had done and to demand that she be put to death because of it. So he must put her away. He must divorce her. But now he's very concerned about how it should be done. He can expose her, but instead the scripture says he wanted to keep it quiet. He was going to keep everything quiet. There's no public announcement that will be made. Well, that speaks to us that there was forgiveness in his actions. And that's exactly the kind of man that God needed for this marriage. Another man would have exposed this supposed affair And then what would have happened? Well, the Son of God would have been raised as a scorned child. He would have been called a bastard son. And nobody would have granted him any audience in his public ministry. But he was a just man. And so so Joseph was rewarded for that character. What could have turned out to be the greatest reproach upon him actually turned out to be his greatest blessing because this man, Joseph, became the one who had the Son of God right there in his very household. Now, there's much more that we could say about Joseph, who is the groom. He has a great character. I mean, before he knew all of the facts, before all of that came out, he was willing to forgive. And that shows us the character of the very one that he would raise. There's only one difference in that, is that Jesus knows all of the facts. He knows exactly who we are. He knows exactly what we've done. Mary was innocent, but we're not. And still, 
Jesus forgave us. Now, the next person, of course, in the marriage would be Mary, and she's the bride. What do we know about Mary? Well, Matthew doesn't really tell us very much about her. And so we can go over to another gospel account. That's the book of Luke. And there Luke has quite a bit to say about Mary. In Luke chapter 1, Luke records what is called Mary's Magnificat. And that word is taken from Luke chapter 1, verse 46, where Mary begins a speech in which she says, My soul doth magnify the Lord. I encourage you, we don't have time to read all of that today, but go over to the book of Luke, chapter 1, read verses 46 through 55, and there you find how Mary expresses the gratefulness that she had for being chosen by God. Now, if we could say then that Joseph was devastated by this news, then we could say about Mary that she was dumbfounded by this choice. In Mary's Magnificat, she expresses the deep humility of the choice that God had made. And so she says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. So she calls herself a handmaiden of low estate. That would be the same as if she had said, I am nobody. Who am I? Why would God choose me? I'm nobody. So there's no pride in this. There's no boasting because God had chosen her. Years later, the disciples of Christ would begin to jockey for their position. Each one of them wanted to be first in the kingdom of God, to sit at the right hand of Jesus. But we don't find anything like that here with Mary. She asked for nothing. She is content to do only and exactly what God would have her to do. Number two, we could say about her that she was blessed by the choice. She said, Behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. And I think about that, and I think about how far that Mary was at that time from the veneration that Mary is given today, and because of these very words. Mary was blessed to be a vessel that God used. But something that every one of us ought to be very much aware of is that Mary was a sinner just like you and me. She was not immaculately conceived. She had no part in the redemption of man. And Mary would shudder to see all that goes on in her name today. To see that people would bow down to her and worship an image of her and pray to her. Mary had more character than those who bow down before her because she never desired that her star should shine as brightly as the Savior's. So these are the two people that God chose. Neither one of them knew that they were going to be used in such a mighty way, that God would use these two people to bring Jesus Christ, the God-man, God's own Son, into the world. So we see that contract for the companions and the character of the couple But now we come to the miracle itself. And so this is the conception of the child. Joseph was devastated by the news. Mary was dumbfounded by God's choice. But now we come to the actual truth that's revealed. Mary had not been unfaithful. There is no sin in the conception. And so we read in verse number 20, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So what is the divine genealogy of Christ? 
Well, it certainly doesn't come out of those 42 generations that we read in those first 17 verses. Neither is Joseph named as the father of this baby. It's not, as some have supposed after this, that it was really an unnamed person. And that was the father of Jesus. Now, this is very clearly a miracle. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus must be born of a virgin, or else he could not be the Savior. You see, Jesus could not come into this world with a sinful nature. Every person born into this world receives a sinful nature. All of us are sinners. All of the world, every single person who's ever been born comes into the world with original sin. So we have that sinful nature. It's been passed all the way down from Adam to the present day. And all of these centuries, there has never been one single person who was free of the taint of sin. All of us have that sinful nature. But Jesus did not. And that's because Jesus was born of a virgin. The Bible teaches us that the sinful nature is passed on through the Father, from the man, through Adam. But Jesus did not receive that sinful nature because he was born of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Scriptures are very clear in verse number 18 that Mary was found to be pregnant before Joseph and Mary actually came together. And so it's further testified there that the father of Jesus Christ is not any human. His father is God himself. So Jesus was human and he was divine, born of a human mother with God as his father. So an angel came to Joseph to give him more information about this, to tell him the truth about the conception. But as he did so, he also delivered some information about the child. The first, the angel shows Joseph that the name that Jesus will be called by, or this baby would be called by, is a perfect name. He has a perfect name that's perfectly suited for him. So the angel says, his name shall be called Jesus. The New Testament had been written in Hebrew. We would read this and we would say, his name shall be called Joshua. There are actually two people in the Old Testament that are named Joshua, and both of them turn out to be a type of Christ. The first Joshua was the one that most of you are probably familiar with, and that's the one who led Israel after Moses died. And in Numbers chapter 13, verse 16, Moses changed the name of this man. It says there, these are the names, this is Moses uh, doing this, these are the names of the men which Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Oshea the son of Nun, Jehoshua. Now, Jehoshua is shortened to Joshua. But the interesting thing about that name is that the way that it's prefixed, it's J-E-H that comes in the beginning of that name, which is actually a form of Jehovah. So the name has God in that name. Now Moses, who was representative of the law, gave the next leader of Israel a name that actually points to the inability and the weakness of the law to save. The law cannot save us. And so Joshua's name, he's given a name that means Savior. It means Jehovah saves. If you read over in Acts 7, verse 45, there's a story there about Stephen, the first martyr, who is standing before the Sanhedrin. And in that scripture, it substitutes the name Jesus for Joshua when it talks about how that Joshua led Israel into the promised land. So Joshua is a type of Christ. And Jesus is given this name because he is the one who saves. He's the head of salvation. 
In the same way that Joshua was the leader of Israel, the one who would take them into the promised land. And so Jesus, that name, he's the Savior. He's the one who takes us into the place that God has promised. But then you have the next person in Scripture named Joshua. And this was Joshua the high priest. He was a high priest right after the Babylonian captivity. There's an interesting thing in the Word of God that says about this great high priest. Hebrews says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Christ represents us as a priest before God. Priesthood, that's one of the things that Jesus came to do. And so this name that is given to Jesus is perfectly suited for the work that he would do. Now, the second thing that we see the angel told Joseph is that Jesus has a purpose to effect. The angel says he shall save his people from their sins. Now, Joshua, the leader of Israel, and Joshua, who was the high priest, could only testify of what the Messiah would do through their name, through their name, Joshua. But Jesus, actually, having been given this name, will not testify of the name, but he's the one who actually brings that work to pass. He will fulfill the purpose of the name. So he won't testify of salvation. He actually is salvation. And so that's why we say that Christianity is not a religion that saves you. Christianity is actually the person who saves you. I wish that I could go into all the implications of the statement, he shall save his people from their sins, because this is a statement that's made to show that he saves none others. It's his people that he saves. These are the ones that are given to him by the Father. And so that means that there is a vast multitude of people from every tribe, from every nation, from every kindred, and Jesus saves them. He comes as their Redeemer. He comes as the one who will redeem the promised seed from the foundation of the world. And so Jesus did not come to attempt to save anybody. Jesus came to save, and he came to redeem all those that he eternally intended to redeem. So his purpose is to save, it's to redeem, and he never fails in that purpose. And so Jesus came to take away the sins for all for whom he died, and they really do have their sins taken away. If the angel had said, he shall try to save his people from their sins, well, that wouldn't have made this child very special. Every person that's born in the world has tried to do the very same. This is exactly how we are naturally in our religion. We try to save ourselves. And all the world's systems are built upon that premise. What I do will help me to get into heaven. I can save myself. That's what we're all trying to do. And it only takes just a short conversation with just about anybody to find out that information. You ask them, are you going to heaven when you die? And the answer that comes back, well, I think so. I haven't really done too many bad things. I'm basically a pretty good person. So most believe that salvation is like a scale for measuring things. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds then that means that you can go into heaven. And so man is constantly trying to save himself by doing all kinds of good deeds. And in fact, folks, that is just another way of saying that what Jesus did really doesn't matter because I'm the one who saves me. It's by what I do. So if the angel had said, he shall try 
to save his people from their sins, Jesus wouldn't have been very special at all. Not this Jesus. Jesus saves his people. And should it be true that all people are his people, then all people would be saved. But the truth of the matter is, not all people are his people, and only his people will be saved. He shall save his people from their sins. So that's his purpose, and he's still affecting that purpose today. But then thirdly, not only does he have a perfect name, not only does he have that purpose to affect, but also he has a prophecy to fulfill. Verse 22 says, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now we'll see that kind of construction over and over again as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, more than any other Gospel writer, goes back into the Old Testament to show how that Jesus fulfilled multiple prophecies that proved that he was the Messiah. This particular one was given 700 years before Jesus was born and comes from the book of Isaiah. There Isaiah wrote, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I I won't labor the point today that both the prophet and Matthew said or emphasized that this child would be born of a virgin. Now, there's some modern translations of the Bible that you can pick up, and they change that scripture in Isaiah 7.14 to say that there was a young woman. Behold, a young woman shall conceive. But the word here can't be used any other way, actually, than that of a virgin. So if he wasn't virgin-born, he could not be the Savior. One of the reasons that I like to go back and look at these Old Testament prophecies is because it shows us over and over again how that God is in such control of everything that happened concerning the birth of Christ. God controlled it all. He made sure that Jesus would come from that proper, proper lineage, that he would be the royal seed of David. And so God preserved that throughout all these Old Testament times. He kept the genealogy pure so that when we come to read it in both Matthew and Luke, there's something real there. I mean, the ancestry of Christ is a fact that can't be disputed. Well, what about this prophecy? Let's, let's talk about that for just a minute. The prophecy in the Old Testament, Isaiah seven fourteen. What, who was there? What was that all about? Well, the prophecy was actually given in the time of a wicked king of Israel by the name of Ahaz. At that time, the nation of Israel had been split into two parts. You had the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom that was called Judah. Judah and Israel were at war with one another. And what the northern kingdom had done, the king of Israel had joined in a confederation with the evil king of Syria to fight against Judah. And if they had won and they had conquered Judah, then Israel would have set up a puppet king in Judah. And that means that the royal line of David would have been destroyed. And so Jesus could not have been born of that ancestry. Well, Ahaz was, as I said, a very wicked king. He's the king of Judah, and he didn't trust God. He didn't ask Jehovah God for help. And so when he found out that Israel was about to make war with him, they joined up with the Syrians, he decided to enter into a confederation too. And what he decided to do was join up with the evil king of Assyria. 
So he didn't trust God. And that's the backdrop for this amazing prophecy that Isaiah made. He said, God's going to give a sign. A virgin shall conceive. And what he was talking about is that God, no matter what, was going to protect the lineage of Jesus Christ. He would make sure that all through down those annals of history, that there would be a king, that there would be king after king who sat upon the throne of David until you came right down to the very time of Jesus. And then Jesus would be the final king that sits upon that throne, and he would establish an everlasting kingdom. Now, what that shows us is just the marvelous cohesion of God's word. It's the perfect fulfillment of God's plan. But the astounding part of that prophecy is not the first part. It's not the first part that says that the virgin shall conceive. Now, of course, that's a miracle. Nobody's ever, there's never been a virgin birth in the history of the world. There's never been a virgin birth since. But the greatest miracle was not in the fact that the virgin conceived. The greatest miracle comes in the second part. And that is, he would be called Emmanuel. Now, Matthew goes on to explain to us what that word means. What does Emmanuel mean? And so he interprets and he says, which being interpreted is God with us. That's the great miracle, God with us. Now, virgin birth, I'll grant you, that's, that's a big miracle. But to think that God himself could become man, God with us, that's the greatest miracle. I want to close my message today with this reiteration that he is God with us. Jesus is not a created being. He's not a son by natural generation. He is a son by eternal generation. The Bible says that he is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. Now, those who argued with Jesus, remember, they argued a lot about this fact. They didn't argue about the ancestry. We've got that written down. The written record is there. They don't argue about ancestry. They argue with Jesus over his divinity. Well, they couldn't argue the divinity unless Jesus said, I'm God. That can't be overlooked in the Scripture. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And that is a statement that he is the eternally existent God. Now, I want, you to, I want to close the message today. Take out your Bibles now. Let's look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Now, John also uh, tells the story about Jesus. He's a gospel writer. But John does not give us a human genealogy of Christ. It's John's purpose to show us that he is God. He and he is the Son of God. Now, if you look at John, chapter 1, John 1, beginning in verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I'll show you in just a moment that that's talking about Jesus. Verse number 2, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, skip down to verse number 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That is the incarnation of Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The Word, Jesus Christ, was made flesh. In the beginning, it says, was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So he's called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the eternal God, and only Jesus has the power to save. And so we go back to Matthew chapter 1, and we find out what Joseph did. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and they called his name Jesus. So Joseph obeyed the voice of the angel. He married Mary. He protected her from the scorn and from the ridicule. And then he never touched her. He never touched her until Jesus was born. And that was so no one could possibly claim that the child was his. And so this is the one born into the world. His name is Jesus. And the scripture says he will save his people from their sins. I want to ask you today, are you acquainted with this one who's called Jesus? Have you taken the name of Jesus by trusting him as your personal Savior? If you trust him, the Bible says that he will save you, and that is proof that you are one of his people. See, the virgin birth is an essential miracle that we find in the Bible. Jesus cannot be your Savior unless he came into the world. He can't be your Savior if he's just a man. He has to be God. Now, God can't die. God can't go through suffering. And so Jesus had to come as a man in order to go through that suffering and to die as a sacrifice for sin. So Jesus became a man for the suffering of the cross, and that is what pays the penalty of our sins. And the Bible puts it very simply and very clearly. If you believe, if you believe that the penalty has been paid, then the scripture says you can be saved. Thank the Lord for this. He is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we look into your word. What an amazing miracle that we see here. Not just a virgin birth, but that God became a man. God came in the form of man, just a little baby who grew up and then went to the cross to save us from our sins. I ask you, Lord, that you'd speak to the heart of some person here today. Help us to realize who Jesus really is. He is the Savior. He is God. And I pray, Lord, that everyone here today would trust him, believe in him, and know that when they die, or if you should come today, that they'll go to heaven. Thank you, Lord, for your word that we've heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.